Good morning to everybody. And a very Merry Christmas to each one of you today, as well as, I know it's not Christmas today, but this is my opportunity to wish you a Merry Christmas. Um, also, Happy Hanukkah. That starts tonight. Um, first night of Hanukkah. Uh, we will, of course, have a uh, good friend today, Dr. Rich Freeman, who will be bringing the message forward from Chosen People Ministries. Um, he, uh, well, I'll introduce him in a minute, but he has a great, he's part of a great ministry to bring the gospel to the Jewish people. So a lot, many of you, probably most of you know who he is, but I'll introduce him anyway in a couple of minutes. Let's begin by entering into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning. We want to thank you, Father, all the way back when we sinned in Adam, that you all, from the very beginning of the book of Genesis, you promised us a savior and you brought forth the Jewish people. And from there, from the loins of Abraham was born our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's his birth that we celebrate today. And all the way through the Jewish history and the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, you protected them. At one of their most difficult times of need, you protected them by a small group of people who also went in and made sure that the temple had light and you performed the miracle. And because they did that, the nation was preserved and Jesus was born a couple hundred years later. So we want to thank you, Father, for the gift of Jesus Christ. We uh, thank you, Father, also that you have... Uh, given us the grace of your grace in saving us and in making salvation a simple case of believing in your son. Today, this morning, Father, we also ask that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct everything going on today. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please stand and worship with us. Good morning again, everybody. I want to just give you a couple of announcements. The uh, schedule for the next week is to begin. We will have our regular Sunday service next Sunday. All right. After that, things will be normal. But this Thursday, we won't be having a Bible study. So we'll get a little break from that. So basically, we'll meet again next Sunday. And then after that, we'll be normal Bible study on Thursday and so forth. Um, we do have a special guest speaker today. He's a dear friend. I'd rather call you a dear friend than a guest speaker, because while you are welcome anytime, you're also a dear friend of mine and I know of our congregation. Rich Freeman, he, uh, he is a uh, part of a great ministry. I mentioned this before, Chosen People Ministries. They uh, preach the gospel in order to reach Jewish people in the United States, around the world. Um, I believe it's your 125th. Do I have that correct? 125 years. They started in New York City. Was it Brooklyn? or Yeah, and uh, they're now they're all over the world. Um, so we have the privilege of having him right here in South Florida. He does travel, but he lives here in South Florida. He is still pastor in two churches. Are oh, you not doing that anymore? Wise man. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's done it for many, many years. Uh, and uh, he has an incredible story. Uh, he was born into a Jewish family, not particularly religious, but he did um, go to Torah school. No, what they call it? Hebrew, Hebrew school, Hebrew school. Um, so then his wife became a believer in Jesus Christ and worked hard on Rich. And then the next thing you know, he's a believer in Jesus Christ also. Um, I mentioned he has served as a pastor at churches in the past. And he's also vice president today of church ministries and conferences. And they have a lot of ministries and they have a lot of conferences. So I'm sure they're keeping you real busy. Again, Chosen People Ministries, and particularly the work that Rich does, uh, focuses on helping us, the church, to undertake Jewish evangelism, how that works. It's very different from uh, many other kinds. You know, we have Catholic people and so forth. They all have their challenges. But, uh, you know, in the, in the scriptures, we're told that reaching the Jewish people has particular challenges because of, um, the, you know, you can read about the fact that the veil is over them. You can understand the fact that they have uh, lots of history where they've had uh, Christians persecute them. So it is, really is a special gift and a special calling in order to minister to the Jewish people. But at the same time, to show us about the Jewish roots of the Christian faith um, so that we understand that better. And that will help us understand the word of God ourselves. And speaking of that, of course, this is our Christmas celebration today. It's also tonight is the first night of Hanukkah. And so this is the perfect time to have Rich with us. And he's got the perfect subject. His title today is Without Hanukkah, There Would Be No Christmas. I'm going to invite you up. But I also want to mention to everybody that we'll have a love offering at the end today. And it's Chosen People Ministries. If you're writing out a check, Chosen People Ministries, just get ready for that. 
Um, also, uh, Rich will probably mention this, he always does, but you may have noticed coming in, there's a table with publications. They're fantastic. I almost did this. Apparently, you can't do that in the United States anymore. But anyway, they're fantastic. I think I have almost all of them. There's always some new ones that I get when I'm here, too. So anyway, I've spoken long enough. This is the man who's speaking today, Dr. Rich Freeman, Chosen People Ministries. No. Now it is. Okay. Good morning. It is always a joy to be with you guys. And uh, John and I tried to keep in, uh, in touch with one another. We had lunch, what, about three months ago? It was always funny. John's behind me, and I'm trying to talk to you. And But uh, so we talked about uh, my coming to the church, and I thought this would be the perfect time to share with you, uh, since very often Hanukkah obviously moves around because it's based on the Hebrew calendar, not the, uh, our regular Gregorian calendar, but this is one of those years where you can have a menorah under your Christmas tree and it would be perfectly appropriate. So I wanted to share that with you. Let me just, when I say Hanukkah, that's probably what you're thinking of, the, the menorah with, with nine candles First night will be, the, the candle in the middle is called a shamash, the servant candle, and it really is a picture of Jesus, and I'll explain a little bit later on. But uh, tonight is the first night. The Jewish day always begins at sunset, and so the first night of Hanukkah will be tonight. And um, again, there's some important significance to the day. Now, typically, growing up as a Jew in Brooklyn, um, we, we basically, our history is this. They wanted to kill us. We had a war. We won, so now let's eat. <laughs> and, and for Hanukkah, you have potato latkes. That's, that's the traditional food. And so if you know Jewish people tonight, one of the things that they're going to serve is potato pancakes, usually with, sour, with uh, sour cream, sometimes with applesauce, but it really is... The house has this very unique smell when, when you make potato lockers. But the tradition, because of the, the story of the oil that was only supposed to last one day for eight days, that things that are cooked in oil are traditional. So what we had for breakfast would have been perfectly appropriate tonight for Hanukkah. All those donuts is very, very common. In fact, in Israel, uh, jelly donuts are the uh, main staple for Hanukkah, even more than potato lockers. And so... So let me just share a little of some of my recollections. Uh, as I said, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and in, an, in what I would call a, I guess, a secular Jewish home. We call it secular now. It was just not very religious. Uh, my dad was third-generation American. Uh, I, I, you know, second-generation American. I'm third-generation. My mom came from immigrant parents who came from, from Russia, and my little grandma Goldie was sort of the matriarch of the family, and anything religious focused on her. And uh, we used to, I mean, I lived in a neighborhood where you were either Jewish or Italian. So all my Italian friends had great Christmas trees, lots of presents under their trees. And I used to think, before I understood the scriptures, I used to think that Hanukkah was just like a Jewish attempt to imitate Christmas. I mean, you know, they have a Christmas tree. We have this little Hanukkah, Hanukkah menorah. Uh, I mean, the, the one thing that, that we had that, that my uh, non-Jewish friends didn't have, we had something called Hanukkah gelt. Now, Hanukkah gelt was basically chocolate covered in gold foil made to look like coins. And my grandmother was very frugal. And so the stuff that she didn't use one year, she would use the next year. And the problem was, Grandma Goldie was always afraid that her clothes would get moths. You know, the moths would eat holes in the clothes. So she had lots of mothballs all, all over her. And where she stored the Hanukkah gelt was where the mothballs were. So mothballs 
are not the best way to flavor your chocolate. So Hanukkah Gel, to me, was this chocolate that tasted like mothballs. And so uh, we lived in a two-family house, and the family upstairs, the, our landlord was Italian, and they had a great Christmas tree. And we always knew, my sister and I, that there would be a present under the tree for us. So I was kind of jealous about Hanukkah. Uh, but I never really understood the spiritual significance of it uh, until I became a Christian, until I became a believer in Jesus. And so this message today really, I think, will help you understand why it's important for us to remember Hanukkah. Why as Christians, this Jewish holiday that uh, you're going to see menorahs all over the place. Usually now that the tradition, uh, if people aren't religious, they'll put an electric menorah in their window. So that kind of making a statement that, you know, we're Jewish, that kind of thing. But observant Jewish people will light the candles because they're the fire is, has significance. And so I want you, as you see these menorahs all around South Florida, to remember the significance. And what I'd like to begin with is the beginning. Okay? So if you would open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And... Uh, My wife usually comes with me. My my, my wife's a little under the weather this morning, so my son volunteered to be with me, so you'll get to see him over by our book table. But I've been blessed with three children, all of whom are married and have children of their own. And uh, typically at a wedding, uh, this particular verse in Genesis 2 uh, will be included. And it begins in verse 24. It says, For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. A wonderful verse and encouragement about the intimacy uh, that a married couple ought to have. But I've never been to a wedding where the next verse was read. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, why on earth would there be this in the Bible? I mean, who cares that Adam and Eve were naked? I don't want to know that. It's too much information. But the point of it being that God created Adam and Eve to have a perfect, intimate relationship with him and a perfect, intimate relationship with themselves. That's how God created man to be. And then came the fall. And everything changed. And so what we're going to be looking at is the consequences of the fall, and how God has used that occasion to basically bring us back to where we were originally created to be. And that is to have that perfect relationship with him and a perfect relationship with one another. And so let's look at what many believe is the first messianic prophecy. And it's the in this section of chapter 3, and you know the story of the fall where God tempts Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we don't know if it's an apple tree. Some think it might have been a pomegranate tree. It's irrelevant. The point being that that tree in the middle of the garden was the only tree that they were not supposed to eat from. Everything else was theirs. And yet Satan tempted them to eat from that tree. And once they did everything changed. And remember, they tried to cover up their nakedness because now suddenly uh, they weren't without guilt and shame. It was part of the equation, so to speak. And so this is the consequences of the fall. And we read that the Lord God said to the serpent, we know from the book of Revelation that the serpent was actually Satan. And, And God said this, because you've done this, the temptation of Adam and Eve, Cursed are you more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So it's very likely that rather than being a snake in the garden, it was more like a lizard-like creature that had legs, because part of the consequences was that uh, the serpent would now have to crawl on its belly, like a snake. And here's the verse. This is the very first messianic prophecy. I will put enmity, which means warfare or hostility, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. 
he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. What is this statement? Well, basically, that this warfare between Satan and the woman will ultimately conclude with the seed of the woman defeating the seed of the serpent, and the serpent, Satan, will ultimately be defeated by this seed of the woman. Now, how many of you have taken high school biology? So you should all understand that seed is always associated with the male. And yet, this is the seed of the woman. So this is not a natural thing. This is supernatural. This seed of the woman would be supernaturally coming uh, and we know that it's an allusion to the virgin birth of Jesus. Very first messianic prophecy. And so, now that God has revealed to Satan how he's going to defeat him, uh, Jack, this is especially for you. Military strategists tell you that it's really bad to let your enemy know what you're going to be doing. Would you agree with that? Okay. Is God a bad military strategist? Of course not. God is letting Satan know exactly what he's going to do because Satan can't stop him. It is already done. In eternity, God has already defeated Satan. In time and space, we haven't gotten there yet. We have to play it out. But it's already done. It is finished. It's done. Satan has lost. So you would have thought Satan being a spiritual being that he would have understood he can't win. Therefore, he needs to negotiate the best possible exit strategy he can. But Satan's pride is such that he can't see through that and thinks that he has a shot at beating God and being God, in fact. And so what Satan is trying to do is keep the seed of the woman... from being born. That's his strategy. If he can keep this seed of the woman, you know, God revealed it, it's going to be the seed of the woman that's going to defeat him. If he can keep the seed of the woman from defeating him, then he wins. And so what is Satan's strategy? And we're going to look at that. It's kind of a a history of the Jewish people, if you will. It begins with Cain and Abel. And in Genesis chapter 4, We read this, now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now, in your Bibles, your English translations, with the help of should be italicized. Everybody see that? What that means is in the original Hebrew language, it's not there. And the editors of, the, of this particular English translation believe that it's inserted to help you better understand the idea behind the language. The problem is it takes a little bit too much literary license, I believe. And so what you have is Eve saying, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord, in the Hebrew. What Eve is saying is, I just gave birth to the promised seed. I've given birth to the Messiah. And there's a kind of a comical tradition among Jewish women when they give birth to sons that they've given birth to the Messiah. My mother was no different. (laughs) And so, what does Satan do? I mean, you know the story of Cain and Abel. Have you ever asked yourself, where did this jealous hatred come from? It just seemed so odd that in his jealousy of Abel, that Cain would go to such an extreme and kill his brother. And I think that what we can safely say is that Satan got involved here. And if this was the promised seed of the woman, he's going to mess things up. And how did he mess things up? He messed things up by having Cain kill his brother and basically making Cain irrelevant to the prophecy. 
Now what he didn't realize is God was going to use not Cain, not Abel, but the third son, whose name was Seth, to continue the promised line. And that's exactly what happened. And there's a number of famous people in that line, including someone named Enoch, who never saw death. So where where does Satan go next? I think where we see him next is in Genesis chapter 6. And Genesis chapter 6 is a kind of a, I would say, a controversial passage. And I am of the ilk that believes that this is, again, something very supernatural. Let's read. It says, it came about, this is Genesis 6 verse 1, when men began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and took and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Well, the sons of God, the Hebrew phrase B'nai Elohim, throughout the Old Testament almost always refers to angels, angelic beings. So what I believe is going on here is these are angelic beings, but fallen angelic beings, demonic beings, controlled by Satan, who are cohabitating, if you will, with human females and creating a new being with corrupted DNA called a Nephilim that God ultimately would have to deal with, and that's where the flood comes in. Satan believed that if he could do this corrupt mankind, that God would never be able to have this seed of the woman come forth. So the story, I believe the story of the flood and Noah is that those eight people, Noah, his three, his wife, His three sons and their wives were the only eight people on earth that didn't have corrupted DNA. And I have to tell you, if you would study some commentaries on Genesis 6, there's a whole variety of opinions on that. But if you're going to take the Bible literally, this is usually the one that comes out of it. And so I believe that this was Satan's attempt, again, to keep the seed of the woman from coming, ultimately to keep Jesus from being born by the flood. And yet God destroyed every being on planet Earth, except for those eight, and then basically started over. And so that was Satan's next attempt. Now things get interesting. We go from a line of individuals now to a nation. And the nation of people that will come from, in Genesis 12, Abram, is called the Hebrews. Now let me just explain to you what I mean. I'm in a ministry that brings the gospel to the Jew first, to the Jew especially. We use that phrase, Jew or Jewish, as a means of describing the physical seed of Abraham. But that phrase does not come until much later with the birth of Jacob's son, Judah. That's where the term Jew or Jewish comes from. The proper technical term to describe the nation that's going to come from Abraham are the Hebrews. And that that word means those who have crossed over. And just to give you a little background, where they crossed over from is the Euphrates River. Because the locale of Abram and his family is Ur of the Chaldeans, commonly associated with Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq. And so the Hebrews crossed over the Euphrates River and ended up going to Canaan, into the Middle East, which is what is now modern-day Israel. So listen to the prophecy. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. So he's telling him to leave, to cross over. He says, and I will make you a great nation. Now, that seems relatively inconsequential except for this. When the prophecy is given, Abram is 75 years old, his wife is 65 years old, and they're without children. So she is way beyond childbearing years, and he's getting up there in years as well. 
they are physically incapable of having children, so that when we talk about Israel, when we talk about the Hebrew people, they were supernaturally created by God. It didn't just happen. It couldn't happen on its own. God had to supernaturally create this nation of people. And he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what is known as the Abrahamic covenant. And so here's the promise. There's going to be a great nation coming out of Abram, his wife Sarai, and God's going to somehow do it. Now, God made this promise, but nothing happens. And then turn to Genesis 15. Ten years go by. Now, if God has made a promise to you and nothing happens, what do you do? Do you think, maybe I didn't hear him right? Or do you say, well, let me see if I could help God along and make the promise come to be. Listen, listen to, to some of the back and forth. After these things, the ten years have passed, the word of the God the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram. Now, when you see that phrase, do not fear, what's the implication? Somebody's afraid. What's he afraid of? He says, I'm a shield to you, a protector. Your reward shall be very great. And so he's going to protect him, and he's going to give him a great reward. But nothing has happened. And so I believe that Abram, eventually Abraham, is really undergoing severe, intense spiritual warfare. Because Satan's focal point, remember, is to keep this seed of the woman from coming to being. And now it's going to be through a nation. And that's going to be Satan's focal point for the remainder of history. The Hebrew nation, the nation of Israel. And so he says, don't be afraid. I will protect you, and I will bless you with a great reward. Abram says, O Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, since you've given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. In essence, he's saying, you made a promise and you didn't keep it. If I die, one of my servants is going to inherit all my wealth. Everybody get what's going on here? He's believing that God's not going to deliver. You could almost hear Satan whispering in his ear. You're vulnerable. You're old. God's not keeping his promises. Then verse 4. Behold. Great Hebrew word, hine. means stop and pay attention. The word of the Lord came to him saying, listen carefully to what he says. This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. Now, I have to tell you, if I was God, and you should all be very thankful I'm not, but if I was God, I may have said things a little differently, knowing what what was going to happen. I may have said, listen, Abe, I know you don't get everything, but just... Take it from me. I'm going to allow you and Sarah to have a baby. I know you don't know how it's going to happen, but nonetheless, it's going to happen. But he doesn't say that. Why doesn't God make it clear what he's going to do? Because he didn't have to. Remember the verse in chapter 2. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God's plan has always been one man, one woman. Never multiple wives. I know I can't say this, but not same-sex marriages. One man, one woman. That's God's plan. So Abraham didn't have to hear that it's going to be with Sarah because it was a given. And yet, when Sarah comes to him and says, listen, Abe, I have a great idea. 
I heard that the Kardashians use a surrogate. Why don't we use a surrogate? I have this Egyptian slave named Hagar. She's young. She's healthy. Why don't we let her be our surrogate? She could have a baby through you. God could save face and keep his promise, and everybody will be happy. And instead of Abe saying, this is a terrible idea, old Abe goes, sounds good to me. And today we're still dealing with the consequences of that lack of faith. Because you go to the Middle East, Abraham is not only the father of the Hebrew nation, he's the father of most Arab nations. Because his son Ishmael is seen to be the father of most of the Arab nations. In fact, how many of you have been to Israel? Anybody? In the back. Did you go on the mount, the Temple Mount? Do you remember the Dome of the Rock? The rock in the Dome of the Rock is said to be the place. It's one of the most holy shrines in all of Islam. It's said to be the place where Abraham took Ishmael to sacrifice him. Everybody hear what I said? Not Isaac. Ishmael. That's what is believed and alluded to in the Quran, because he was the older son. And so, we have a big mess. Ultimately, Isaac will be born after God comes to them and says, that wasn't what I meant. When does God come to them? Do you remember? He comes to them 24 years after the original promise. Abraham is 99 years old, Sarah's 89 years old. If she couldn't have a baby when she was 65, she certainly couldn't have a baby at 89. And yet, they conceived. The first they laughed when God told them. So what did they name the baby? They named the baby Laughter. In Hebrew, Yitzchak, Isaac. So Isaac is born, and the promises continue. As much as Satan tried to throw a monkey wrench into things, and he certainly succeeded to mess things up, it didn't stop them. You know the story of Joseph. You know how Joseph saved his family. They were to be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. Exodus 1 says a Pharaoh came who didn't know Joseph. And they went into slavery. But one of the things that they were concerned about is the Hebrews were multiplying at alarming rates for the Egyptians. And so his plan was to kill all the male babies. Where does that, a plan like that come from? Again, I think it's very satanic. And yet we know that out of that came the deliverer because... A man and his wife were not afraid of Pharaoh's edict and instead hid their baby. And God used that baby to deliver them out of slavery, the baby called Moses. The Purim story is one of my favorite holidays. In the book of Esther, there was a man named Haman. And Haman was a, a descendant of a man named Agag. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And if you remember the story in 1 Samuel, uh, King Saul was told to wipe out all of the Amalekites. But he didn't do that. He kept really the, basically the finest stuff from the Amalekites, including their people, and kept them alive. And Samuel showed up and said, What'd you do? Why didn't you obey? And he told Saul that you're not going to lose the kingdom because of this. And then he goes to Agag. And do you remember the story? Agag says, oh, we could have peace. Let's negotiate. And Samuel gets out a sword and hacks him to death and chops him up into little pieces. His descendant was named Haman. You could see where he might have 
a little bit of hatred for the people uh, that did that to his uh, family member. And so he came up with a scheme, getting the Persian king Ahasuerus to issue a decree to basically make an open hunting scene against the Jewish people around the world. And on that date, selected by Lot, the Hebrew word pur, or purim for lots, that date was going to be the extinction of the Jewish people. You know the story, it didn't quite work out the way Haman planned. And God, even though God's name is not mentioned in the book of Esther, orchestrated all of that to take place. Historically, that brings us to the end of the Old Testament. And at this point, Satan still hasn't succeeded in keeping the seed of the woman from being born. And that's where the Hanukkah story comes in. Because you see, Hanukkah is not in the Old Testament. It's a very well-known Jewish holiday that if you're around Jewish people, you know about Hanukkah. But Hanukkah is not an Old Testament feast. The historical events happened in what's called the intertestamental period. So it happened after the Old Testament, before the New Testament. And as we look at the story, some really interesting historical events are involved. Now, when I say interesting historical events, it's not Bible. Now, you all know what the Apocrypha is? The Apocrypha is, it's, if you have a Catholic Bible, it'll be in the Catholic Bible, but it's intertestamental stuff to kind of, to kind of fill in the gaps. And in First and Second Maccabees, which are apocryphal books, the story of Hanukkah is in there. But historically, it's some interesting history. It's just not Bible. And the history begins with someone that you should be very familiar with. And Jack, again, this is for you. Isn't Alexander the Great considered the greatest military genius of, of history? I'm picking on you. I'm sorry. But the point being that Alexander the Great conquered the known world by the time he was 30 years old. He was brilliant. But I'm going to use a, a New York word. I hope you understand. He was a sleaze. And he died childless, without any heirs. And so his vast kingdom was divided among four generals. One of those generals was a man named Seleucus. And the Seleucids actually controlled much of the Middle East. And one of the Seleucid kings was a man named Antiochus IV. This is 2nd century B.C. And he was known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Basically, Antiochus, God in the flesh. So he had a pretty high opinion of himself. He was also thought to be insane and delusional. So the Jews, unbeknownst to him, had a name for him. They called him Antiochus Epimenes. Just a few changes. It means Antiochus the crazy man. What did Antiochus desire to do? His plan was to destroy the Jews because Israel and Judah were smack in the middle of his plans for conquering nations. And they would constantly get in his way and keep his armies from coming through, either going from north to south to Egypt or east to west. And so he wanted to get rid of them. And so how did he do that? Three things. Number one, he made it a capital crime for Jewish women to circumcise their male babies. Covenant of circumcision is crucial. In Judaism. So no circumcision. Basically, the Jews then become Gentiles, like, all the, like the rest of the nations. That's one of the things that kept them separate. Secondly, he made it a capital crime to read the Torah scrolls. So anybody who wanted to study the Bible, if they got caught, they would be immediately executed. And then third... Judaism 
back in that time, prior to Jesus, was dependent upon the temple. Biblical Judaism required sacrifices, which God accepted by grace as a means of helping them understand that there's something future to come, which would be the coming of Jesus, the seed of the woman. And so, if they were dependent on the temple, Antiochus decided he would defile the temple. And the way he did that was he sacrificed swine to the god Zeus inside the temple. The temple was defiled. And basically, Judaism was inoperable. Babies couldn't be circumcised. The scriptures couldn't be studied. The temple was defiled. His desire was to wipe out the Jewish people. And he probably came closer than anyone prior to the birth of Jesus. More so than Haman, more so than Pharaoh. He was said to have wiped out a third of the population of Israel and Judah at that time, second century. He then made it a law that Jewish priests had to sacrifice pigs. And if they didn't, they would be killed. So one particular Jewish priest, a man named Mattathias, refused to do that. And his sons led a band of freedom fighters to fight against Antiochus. His oldest son was a man named Judah. And they were called the Maccabees. The word means hammer. And this little band of freedom fighters defeated the army of Antiochus. A vast army. A great miracle. And they defeated the army of Antiochus. And when they went into the temple to rededicate it and make it appropriate for sacrifices, what they found was there was only oil for one day. Now, the oil story gets a little dicey here. If you ask a Jewish person what Hanukkah is about and why it's eight days, they will very likely tell you that they went into the temple, they found the oil lamp, and there was only enough for one day, and it would have taken them eight days to get enough oil to fill it up again, and yet it lasted till they were able to get more oil. That's typically the story. That's a later story. That's not in First and Second Maccabees. That's not why Hanukkah is an eight-day feast. Hanukkah is an eight-day feast because when they went into the temple to rededicate it, that's what the Hebrew word Hanukkah means, the the Feast of the Dedication, when they went in to rededicate it, the question was, what was the last feast that we should have celebrated? And the last feast was the Feast of Sukkot, Tabernacles. Tabernacles is an eight-day feast. And so I believe the reason Hanukkah is eight days, it was celebrated as a delayed Sukkot, a delayed Feast of Tabernacles. And Hanukkah eventually is called the Festival of Lights because of, of the lighting of the menorahs, but the only place it's mentioned in the Bible is in the New Testament. So I want to conclude and really basically give you the answer why I said without Hanukkah there would be no Christmas. What if Antiochus had succeeded? Think about that. Antiochus's plan was to completely destroy the Jews. No remaining Jew anywhere. And obviously, in, in our own modern times, we had Hitler and the Holocaust, and that was his plan. Has anybody ever been to Prague, Czechoslovakia? There's a synagogue in Prague. It's a museum now. And that synagogue was the place that Hitler was, was going to erect the museum to the dead race of people known as the Jews. That was his plan. That he was going to wipe out the Jews. That was Antiochus' plan. So if Antiochus had succeeded and wiped out the Jews, and we're talking about 
only 165 years before Jesus. If he had succeeded, no Jesus. If there were no Jews, there'd be no Jesus. That's why without Hanukkah, there would be no Christmas. That's why it was such a great miracle that this little band of freedom fighters was able to defeat an established strong army, one of the strongest in the world at the time. So if he had succeeded, Jesus wouldn't have been born. Obviously, he didn't succeed. Anybody ever wear WWJD bracelets? I have a little twist on this. Instead of what would Jesus do, what did Jesus do about Hanukkah? Turn to John chapter 10. This is the only mention of Hanukkah in the Bible. And it's found in John 10, beginning of verse 22. So we read this. At that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. So the feast of the dedication, beginning on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, which is typically in December, uh, is taking place, and Jesus is in the temple celebrating Hanukkah. And we read, verse 24, the Jews then gathered around him, and I have to tell you, when I first read the New Testament and read the Gospel of John, I bristled a little with all the mention of the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. Almost sounds anti-Semitic. The phrase there that's translated the Jews is actually the phrase Judeans. And these were the Jewish religious leaders who were in opposition to Jesus. So the Jewish religious leaders opposed to Jesus gathered around him and said, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, tell us plainly. And he's there. this is taking place on Hanukkah. Why did he want him to do that? C.S. Lewis said there's only three things that you could call Jesus based on what you believe. Liar, lunatic, or Lord. He'd be a liar if he claimed to be the Messiah and knew he wasn't. He'd be a lunatic if he claimed to be the Messiah, thought he was, but he wasn't. I have a story I want to tell you. A friend of mine, his wife was a psychiatric nurse. And they had a group session one day. And there was a man sitting, brand new patient, with his hand inside his chest, like this. And everybody's introducing themselves. And he said to my friend's wife, the nurse, I am Napoleon. And she said, okay, hello, Napoleon. Who told you that you were Napoleon? He said, why, God, of course. And with that, a voice in the back said, I did not. <laughs> so if, if he claimed to be the Messiah, thought he was, but he wasn't, he'd be a lunatic. But if he is who he claimed to be, then he's the Lord. And that's what they find out. And in verse 30 of chapter 10, Jesus makes a statement. He said, I and the Father are one. Now he's not saying we're like this. He's saying we're of the same essence. He was clearly claiming to be God incarnate just as they asked him, stated plainly. And it says that they picked up stones to stone him, picked up stones again to stone him, because earlier when he said before Abraham was, I am, claiming to be the I am of the Old Testament, they understood that. The punishment for blasphemy, and clearly they saw Jesus as a man, a man claiming to be God, is blaspheming, and the punishment for that is death by stoning. So that's why they picked up the stones. They understood what he was doing. So what Jesus did on Hanukkah was the clearest de declaration of his being God incarnate. Now I have an interesting theory for you. 
we're going to sing some more Christmas carols. And we're going to sing about Christ our Savior is born. When was he born? Well, we'd celebrate December 25th, but we don't really know, do we? It's not in the Bible. It'd be a lot simpler if it just said, on December 25th, they woke up and... No, we don't know. I have a theory. Remember I talked about Grandma Goldie, my grandmother from the old country? Well, because of persecution, Jews didn't have documentation for their birth. So we didn't really know when she was born. We celebrated her birthday in August. And I remember asking her, Grandma, when were you born? And she looked at me and smiled, and she said, around Tishbaav. See, Jews, because of persecution, and certainly at the time of Jesus, they were under the occupation of Rome, equated their dates to feast days. Here's my theory. Jesus was born on Hanukkah. Remember the date of Hanukkah? The 25th day of the Hebrew month of Kislev, which is primarily in December. And so, my theory is that when the church finally was looking to get an official date for his birth, they started asking questions of scholars, and scholars said, well, the early church celebrated it in the winter around Hanukkah time. When's Hanukkah? The 25th of Kislev. When's Kislev? December. Okay, December 25th. That's my theory. Some of you maybe think he was born in October, some think April. You know what? It doesn't matter. We celebrate the most important day in human history when God came as a human being, as a helpless baby, to be the Savior of the world. That's the importance of Christmas. That's why it's so important. So, tradition. I love that song. How many of you have seen Fiddler on the Roof? If you haven't, you've got to see it. You want to understand Jewish people, see Fiddler on the Roof. That was Grandma's story. She had five sisters, and she was the youngest of five sisters. So, Tevye had all those, little, those daughters. She was the youngest. But, I think we need to recognize the importance of keeping the understanding of the Jewishness of Jesus. And so, I want you to go home. I'm, I'm only teasing, but could you imagine if we all had Christmas trees that look like this? And a Hanukkah menorah sitting next to it. It would really represent who our Savior was. But you know what? None of that matters. However you want to celebrate it, enjoy the holiday. Because Santa Claus really was Jewish. And his real name, his real name is Hanukkah Harry. And Hanukkah Harry says, enjoy the season. Amen? Amen. So, uh, we're going to pray in a moment. I want you to do me a favor. You should have gotten one of these cute little brochures with my wife and my picture on the back. This is only for those of you who don't get our prayer letter. How many of you get our prayer letter? Okay. You don't have to do this. If you don't get our prayer letter, here's what I want you to do. I want you to open it up just like this. Come on. Hold it up. Open it up. And then what we're going to do is an ancient Jewish tradition together. Everybody ready? It's called the tearing of the brochure. A very ancient tradition. So I want you to fold it right on the perforation. It's that last piece. And then at the count of three, we're going to tear it together. You're looking at me kind of funny. We're going to tear it together, complete this ancient Jewish tradition. If you do this right, it's going to make this really neat sound. So you all ready? Here we go. Count of three. One, two, three. A little slow, but that's okay. This is for you to keep. This is all about Chosen People Ministries. As as Pastor John said, we just celebrated our 125th anniversary of ministry, started by a rabbi from Hungary who came to know Jesus in the streets of lower Manhattan after searching the scriptures 
and a prophecy in Daniel that said the Messiah would come, the Messiah would die, and the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed. And he recognized that the Messiah had to come before 70 A.D. and came to know Jesus through that prophecy. This is a way for you to be involved in our ministry. The pastor said there's going to be an offering for the ministry. Fill this out. If you are praying about giving to the ministry, let us know so we could uh, receipt you properly. But this is a way for you to receive our prayer letter. And a number of people here in the church are getting that prayer letter. And so I would encourage you to be part of our prayer team. One thing that I want to make you aware of, in the beginning of February this coming year, we're going to be having a major outreach just right after the Super Bowl. The Super Bowl's in Miami this year. We're going to have a week of evangelism in South Florida, from Miami all the way up to Martin County. And uh, if you would want to be involved in that, you can be. Just go to our website. The outreach is called Fun in the Sun, S-O-N. And it's really encouraging people from up north to come to South Florida uh, in the winter and, and be involved in ministry. So if you're interested in that, go to our website to check that out. But uh, be part of our prayer team. Uh, As you know, South Florida is one of the largest Jewish populations in the world. In the world, not just in the United States, in the world. There are more Jewish people in South Florida than virtually every country outside of Israel and, and former Soviet Union and the United States, obviously. So we have this wonderful mission field here in South Florida. And as you also know, two-thirds of the people here in South Florida are over the age of 65. So we also have a sense of urgency. So we have a ministry that not only is difficult, we have a ministry that we recognize we don't have the luxury to sit on our hands. We have to be active. And we certainly could use your prayers. So this is a way for you to receive our prayer letter. And then uh, we have a book table out there. One of the things that uh, that we have celebrating our anniversary is our monthly calendar. And there's some great pictures of history of our ministry. Uh, What's unusual about our calendar is you can't study the Bible by January, February, March. All of the feast days, like Hanukkah, are tied into the Hebrew calendar And so in order to see these various feast days, uh, you need to have a Hebrew calendar. So what we've done is taken the Hebrew calendar, superimposed it on the Gregorian calendar, and you could see where the two calendars fit and and why it's so important. So that's our calendar. And then a couple of books. I don't know if we have any new ones, Pastor. This is a book that I really highly recommend called The Messiah in the Old Testament. Uh, If you want to study Jesus from the Old Testament. And understand that to share Jesus with Jewish people, they don't believe the New Testament's the Bible. So you have to show Jesus in the Old Testament. This is a wonderful resource for that. Uh, And probably the clearest presentation of of Jesus in the Old Testament is found in the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. We have a couple of books on that, on the book table. And this was a book that we finished last year called Israel, the Church in the Middle East, based on a celebration of Israel's 70th anniversary, and uh, some great articles in that. And as always, my book is available called The Heart of the Apostle, uh, a study of Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is the clearest presentation of God's plan for Israel, as well as seeing Paul's heart for his people. When you see the Jewish people around here in South Florida and recognize that like everyone else, apart from Jesus, they're lost, that should break your heart. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, I have unceasing grief in my heart as he thought about his Jewish brethren who were lost without Jesus. So I would encourage you, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for the Jewish people around the world, but especially pray for the Jewish people here in South Florida, that their hearts would be open to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your great love for us, that even while we were yet sinners, our Messiah died for us. 
And so, as we prepare to celebrate your birth this morning, as we celebrate your birth uh, this coming Tuesday and Wednesday, may we not forget why that baby was born in a manger, that he came to die for our sins and be the Savior of the world. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Rich. That was a fantastic tour through the Old Testament and the lineage to come down to Jesus Christ and how Satan did everything he could and couldn't stop it. And how I understand that one of those visits was at the time of uh, when the Maccabees defeated the Greek army and preserved the nation of Israel. And then 175 years, 165 years after that was Jesus' birth. Yeah, amazing. All right, just a couple of things before we sing Christmas carols again. And that's, remember, next Sunday's our next service. We won't have Bible study this Thursday. Also, as always, please give us your prayer requests. Um, you can either, there's a box in the back where you can fill it out and dump it in there. Or you can go on our website and you can enter it in that way too. So we do uh, covet your prayers um, for us. And we also want to pray for you and whatever um, you know, petitions that you may have. All right, let's close. Oh, no, let's have a love offering. What's that? What? Oh, fill out the pay. Oh, yeah. You know, um, I, I look good up here, but the reason I do look good is because everybody else, like Jack, was always reminding me of things that I would otherwise forget. So I think you just said, make sure everybody fills out that form. And then is that what you said? Oh, make checks payable. Yeah. Yeah. I should not announce that again, too. Chosen People Ministries is the make it out to the organization. Chosen People Ministries. All right. Let's pray for the offering. Heavenly Father. We thank you so much that there is an organization, Chosen People Ministries, who are dedicated to reaching your people, the Jewish people. We pray for the lost Jewish people in South Florida. We pray for the continued success and uh, blessing of Chosen People Ministries and the people that they minister to. And Father, we would ask that all of us would have our hearts open to the needs of the Jewish people, the opportunities for evangelism, the urgency that we should have about it. And also, Father, gratitude for Chosen People Ministries and you give freely to us and uh, have us give freely to them. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All right, if the ushers could come forward and take the offering. All right, before we close our service today with uh, Christmas carols, I want to make sure everybody is clear on what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Okay. It, the truth is that all of us are lost dead in our trespasses and sins from birth forward. Everybody you meet was a, is one time they're either a believer in Christ or they're still dead in their trespasses and sins. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Without God intervening, every one of us would be judged and go to the lake of fire. That's what it means to be without Christ. That's what it means to be lost. Okay, But God did something about that condition that we were born into. He decided the only solution could be for him to have his son come and become human while remaining God. That's Jesus Christ, whose birth we celebrate this week. He grew up, became a man, never sinned. And at the appropriate time, he delivered him. He offered himself up as a sacrifice for our sins. He, yes, he was killed by the Romans, but in fact, he freely did it himself. It was his choice. And he died for all our sins. And he was buried, all right? At that point, Satan thought it was over. But once again, he was thwarted. It was a surprise for him on Sunday morning. And that's when God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's another miracle that identifies who Christ is, that he has eternal life. And whoever believes in that truth about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins and for us to be justified, whoever believes that will never perish but have eternal life. And God the Father will look at that person at the moment they believe and declare in the heavens that in his eyes that person is righteous forever. That's the power of the word of the cross. And God has given that opportunity for every one of us. So I want to make sure we hear it over and over again so when we have that opportunity, 
We have a reason for the hope that's within us. All right. At this time, I want to invite forward the, the singers, and we're going to have three more Christmas carols, and then uh, I'll have one more prayer. I love to pray, and then I'll dismiss you. All right, real quick. Um, I want to bring Christmas greetings from Steve in Maryland. As many of you know, Marilyn had a, had a, uh, had a, she broke her humerus bone and a knee sprain, and she's still not really up, and Steve's her caregiver. So please keep them in prayer too. All right. Keep, keep, please keep all of us in prayer. We all need it one way or the other. I, I could go out and mention everybody here and some of the issues you're dealing with and some I don't know about. So remember to keep, keep us all in prayer. Prayer is powerful. Speaking of that, Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this glorious truth, this glorious birth of your son. We thank you that we have the opportunity every year to bring into remembrance our Lord and Savior's birth this time of year. We thank you also, Father, that we have the truth, the message of truth, the good news about your son. Especially this time of year, we uh, have people that come into our lives maybe once a year, and we may have an opportunity to have a heartfelt discussion with them about what life is really all about. And we thank you too, both Father, also for the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for one another. And we would just ask for your blessing, and we know you will give it, that we may have a, a memorable and uh, full of understanding Christmas as we celebrate it with our families. We ask this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. And with that, you are dismissed. Merry Christmas to all of you.